welcome to the Analytical Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Yang. I wanted to create a podcast that explored how people use their right brain and left brain. Too often, we are defined by our jobs as analytical or creative. However, when I look around, I see that I'm surrounded by people who blend these two aspects of themselves to create meaningful lives. On this podcast, I will be interviewing people who use their right brain and left brain in fun ways, and I will also be sharing tools to help you develop both. Join me as we explore how to use our analytical and creative sides to bring more dimension to our lives. Hi everyone, I have such an exciting interview with my friend Melinda Crawford Pertu to share with you today. Melinda and I talk about her childhood memories of going to the fun and vibrant Scottish Highland Games or Scottish festivals with her family. At these festivals, she discovered her love of Scottish fiddling and started entering fiddling competitions. Fiddling since age 11, Melinda has won numerous awards for her solo playing and her original compositions. She also performs as a member of the Grammy-nominated bagpipe percussion band The Rogues and is the director of the Strathgenny School of Scottish Fiddling held every year in July at Westminster College in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania. In addition to her fiddling, Melinda is also an associate professor of music at Westminster College, while also the orchestra director, string education specialist, and violin viola instructor. With a sound that harkens back to the highlands and islands, she has performed the music of traditional and modern Scottish fiddling in Scotland and throughout the United States. Blending traditional tunes and her own compositions, she weaves images of ancient lands into sets with vibrant dances that are as much fun to listen to as they are to play. I've also included links to Melinda's YouTube channel for you to hear examples of her fiddling. I am also so excited to share with you a bonus episode of Melinda's music. In our conversation, Melinda talks about how she took a melody and adapted it to better fit the story and tone. You can hear the original melody and Melinda's reinterpretation in the bonus episode. Melinda's story as a trailblazing Scottish fiddler is so inspiring. You don't want to miss it. Hi, Melinda. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me here. I had the fortunate opportunity to actually know both you and your husband, Dan Perdue, who I actually interviewed before. And it's really wonderful to be able to get your perspective on this topic as well. I think it's a great idea of a of a topic. And when I was talking to Dan about what he was doing, it's like, that's a really great idea. And <laughs> yeah, we're both like that. I know. I know. And, and I, want, I would love to hear more about that, um, just what it's like to be you know, married to a partner who has a very similar mindset. And of course you have music as a strong tie between both of you. And so there's going to be a lot to really talk about. Why don't we start off, you know, maybe going back to your childhood and your early career. And can you walk us through what that was like and maybe navigating your creativity as well as school and early career decisions? So it really starts, I started to learn how to play the violin in fourth grade uh, with the school orchestra. I joined to play the violin and loved it. We had a great program. My parents were hugely supportive. So, you know, I got started like, like a lot of people. But it was around that time my dad started to play the bagpipes. He started learning as an adult. So we started traveling around. He was playing with a bagpipe band. And we started traveling around to different competitions and Highland games. And um, he would go off and do 
the bagpiping stuff. And then my mom, my little sister and I would, you know, roam around the festivals and the games and we'd hit the vendors. And uh, about a year after I started playing the violin, we were at uh, one of these games down in West Virginia. We came across this vendor that was selling books and we found a book called The Scottish Violinist by J. Scott Skinner. We were all looking at it and my parents asked me if I wanted it. Well, I'd been playing violin for a year, and that made me a violinist. Ah, I want to try this. So it just sounded like fun. So they bought me the book, and uh, I was already taking lessons with this guy who was trained by the gypsies over in Europe when he was younger. I took my fiddle book to him <laughs> for help, and he looked at it sort of askance and <laughs> okay, you want to learn this? You know, to his credit, he tried. And we looked at some of it, you know, the stuff that looked more like etudes. But it was clear that he wasn't into it. And I picked up pretty quickly that he wasn't going to really help me a whole lot. So that sort of petered out. He sort of helped me get ready for my first competition. And it wasn't that I was competition crazy, but in Scottish fiddling in the United States, especially at that time, the only place really where you got any instruction or you met other Scottish fiddlers was at Highland Games, the Scottish fiddle competitions. So, you know, my parents bought me this book and I'm looking at it. And my dad found that the local games near us, the Ligonier Highland Games, I grew up in Pittsburgh, offered a Scottish fiddle competition. And there was going to be a workshop beforehand. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to learn stuff. So I registered for the competition. And you know, my violin teacher sort of helped me get ready for things. But the only thing we knew about fiddling was that it went fast. I mean, that was really the only thing we knew about fiddling. So, you know, we got ready for the competition and my mom helped. There was a costume requirement. We had to wear a kilt. I, I was a little kid. So uh, we got this secondhand little tartan skirt. I think we still have it in the closet someplace. And I had a white blouse with a big frothy, you know, lace jib bow. And I borrowed her shoes and I had the knee socks and I looked the part and uh, went to the competition and I played through my set. And the, the great thing about the competitions is that you get a feedback form and it's full of judges' comments. And the biggest leap I think I've ever made in my plane came from that competition when the judge told me on the form, all she wrote down for the category of the air, it's a type of fiddle tune, um, is that airs go slowly. <laughs> like, oh, I, I had no idea. So... You know, with that and working with the, the fiddle teacher, I, I stopped taking my fiddling to him. It was not a good match. And I sort of worked on it on the side as I kept going with my violin lessons. And I played in orchestras and I entered competitions. And as my dad did more with a pipe band and my sister ended up getting into Highland dancing, we started traveling around more and more for these uh, Highland games and I started competing more and more and meeting more judges and getting more feedback forms and attending every workshop that I could. And I started sort of piecing it together. And that went on for years. And when we were growing up, fiddling from the classical perspective, the orchestral perspective was still being looked down on. So it's like, oh, you're a fiddler. The assumption was that you couldn't play. So I learned pretty quickly to keep my fiddling sort of under wraps. It was something I loved. And I did it, 
But I didn't broadcast it and I didn't really talk about it when I was in orchestra or auditioning for things or anything like that. But I switched teachers right before college and my new teacher, he knew that I did fiddling and he was interested and he had me fiddle for him. And I remember in my lessons, he'd stop me playing whatever etude we were working on or concerto or things like that. And he'd say, okay, now play, play some fiddling for me. And I would. And he'd say, okay, that, that there. Now, can you take that and put it into what we're working on? Oh, wow. Which was great. And he really started building this tie in for me between the fiddling and the classical. That's something that I have kept going till today because I believe there is a very strong connection between the two different styles. And they definitely inform each other. Wow, Melinda, let's just pause here for a minute. This is so rich. So it sounds like you really taught yourself fiddling and it was a parallel to your classical violin training. Yeah, in the early and, it was. Yeah, and, and really like you were learning through competitions and feedback from there. Yeah. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. That is, oh my goodness, that's so like, it really shows just how you grabbed onto opportunities where they came and and it you know for me it's like when you think of competition it's so daunting and i'm like i would never do that as a learning experience it's more like you want to show up already you know at the highest level and so i love that approach the way the competitions are set up it's really nice because they're different levels and they're levels for beginners. And, you know, you progress through these levels. But the thing about the fiddling is that, first and foremost, it's fun. It is a whole lot of fun just for the performer, dealing with the music and the groove that you generate when you're playing. So there is just so much to gain from doing it oneself. So it, it feels good. And then when I was getting involved with the competitions, I was also meeting other Scottish fiddlers. And they were and are the nicest, warmest, friendliest bunch of people. I was used to, or I was getting used to, you know, because like you said, it was sort of a parallel. Orchestral auditions are cutthroat. I remember going to regional orchestra auditions and, you know, you'd have the people in the corner showing off how high or fast they could play. And, you know, it was that type of atmosphere. But at the competitions, everyone was interested in being friends. And it didn't matter the age. I remember there was one competition I went to repeatedly and the people there were a lot older than I was. I mean, I was the only kid. But they just treated me as another fiddler. And they were very warm and welcoming. And it didn't matter that I was like 30, 40 years younger than they were. But it just worked because they respected me as a player and it was about the music. It was a great culture to step into. So that that really did help. I'm not saying I didn't get nervous for competition. I was a basket case. <laughs> because, you know, this was my opportunity to play. But getting those feedback forms and meeting the judges and doing the workshops and listening to the other fiddlers, I learned so much. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And I love how you bring in the community aspect of this because, and also your family, your whole family is involved. And so just curious, do you have Scottish heritage? 
I do. So my maiden name is Crawford, and the the name Crawford absolutely goes back to Scotland. My dad's side is is Scottish, and his grandmother, who wasn't a Crawford, was Scottish. So just there's a whole lot over there, and. We got into it because of my dad learning the pipes. It was evidently something he'd always wanted to do. We had gone to see a pipe band play, a concert at our high school. Uh, I must have been, I'm guessing, late elementary school at that point in time. And they said, hey, if anybody wants to learn the pipes, meet us backstage after the show. And my mom egged him on. She said, you've always wanted to do this. Let's do it. That's how he got involved. And then through that and the pipe band, and then we're going to the festivals, the whole family just dove in. So, you know, I was young when we got going on it. So it's just been a major part of my life ever since. Can you just paint a picture of what one of those festivals looks like? I mean, my imagination is that's very like a lot of energy and activities and and things like that. Well, the concept of the Highland Games goes back centuries, actually. It's a really old type of idea because in Scotland, everyone, all the clans were separated out and they lived amongst themselves, but they would get together periodically. And of course, you know, there's economics, there's trading and stuff like that. They did their own sort of brand of vendors, but it was a big community event because the different clans would get together and they would hold competitions. Who could toss the sheaf of hay farther? There'd be singing competitions, the bards, you know, who is the best singer. These evolved, you know, if you see it on TV, you see people throwing these tree trunks called cabers. That's where it came from. There's actually a strong culture of these competitions, but it's very much a festival atmosphere. So today you go to a, a Highland Games and it doesn't matter what the weather, you see a lot of wool and tartan. A lot of wool and tartan. And everyone's trying to wear the tartan of their clan. So I'm easy. I I have a, a family tartan. Crawford has its own tartan. So I'm always there in Crawford. And it's fun because then you see somebody else like, oh, you're a Crawford. I am too. You know, you know, it might be, you know, 400 years since your, you know, family's actually connected. But, you know, you are cousins, even if it's from way back. Um, so there's a lot of that. And there are vendors, which are always fun to look at, but you have lots of pipe bands that come and play and they compete. So a lot of piping going on and you have the individual music competitions, but it's heavy spectator based. You know, we always have an audience. So we're playing to an audience and, oh yeah. And then we've got the Highland dancing and my little sister was into that. And it actually used to be for the warriors, for the men, uh, a lot of superstition. And they would like dance the sword dance before battle. And it was a bad omen if your foot touched the sword. So, you know, a lot of the this history, which is fun, but nowadays it's like a lot of girls are Highland dancers. You know, instead of taking ballet, they take Highland dance. It's another big competition. So you watch and you can tell, you know, like when they're dancing the sword dance, you know, everyone's holding their breath. And if you see somebody touch a sword, the whole audience goes, oh, <laughs> We know what that means. So we, you know, we watch people toss the cabers and uh, now they're food trucks selling meat pies and the traditional foods. And it's always a lot of fun and you always leave thoroughly exhausted. I've always loved them. And now that I've got 
little girls and the world's opening up. Um, I'm looking forward to September because I get to go to Highland Games in person and I'm, I'm playing at one and I get to take my girls. That's fun because I'm, I'm really interested in introducing them to the culture and, and the games and the Scottish community. That's wonderful. I love the picture that you painted and and just the vibrancy of that culture and also passing it down. I think that's so important and I'm excited for your girls to experience that too. So all this time, you've also been learning classical violin, which I've been trained in too. And, and I know that's a very different route and you mentioned going to college. And so did you decide that you were going to continue both paths and pursue music in college? I actually went into music. I went into music education. Um, I wanted to be an orchestra director, like my orchestra director that I had in high school. And I never really made a conscious decision of I'm going to pursue both paths because the fiddling was already part of what I did. And it was already becoming an identity of who I was when I had my instrument. So I went in for music, and like I said, I sort of kept it under wraps a little bit. The one person, ironically, that I did not is I really, really, really respected my orchestra director in college. We had an incredible symphonic orchestra, and our conductor was brilliant. I learned so much from him from the classical conducting perspective. But I really respected him as a musician, and I got to the point that before my competitions, I actually made an office hour appointment with him and I played my fiddling set for him. And he knew nothing about fiddling, but he was able to give me feedback from the musical perspective because he could understand what I was doing from that perspective. It didn't matter the genre that I was playing. So I learned a lot from him just in terms of how it's perceived and dealing with the musicality of it, even though we weren't really talking about the nuts and bolts. It sounds like this person and your teacher both had that ability to cross genres even within music. I love that like higher level of connecting the dots. You understand a concept so well that you can take the essence of it and apply it in another way. Exactly. And I really respected them initially, and it just built my respect for them. It just made my time significantly easier. So I went through college like that, but, you know, sort of keeping it under wraps. I lucked out because I went to college at Duquesne University, and they offered Vera I. Hines Travel Abroad Scholarship for female students between the junior and senior years of college. And it was a whole application process. And I heard about it my freshman year. I had a professor tell me about it. I kept my eye on it the whole time. And it was finally my turn to apply. And uh, part of the application process was an interview. So I was applying to go and study in Scotland over the summer. There is a Gallic college on the Isle of Skye called Salmorostig that offered a fiddle course and a Scottish Gallic course. And language and music really also intertwine with the rhythm and the cadence and believe it or not, the ornamentation from the spoken word into the music. And you can hear it very strongly in song. And Scottish fiddling is also not only are we really tapped into the bagpipe sound, but we're also really tapped into Gaelic song. So my application was to go there and study. And so for my interview, I showed up decked out 
in all my tartan, you know, my kilt, I had a kilt by then, my own kilt, you know, real kilt and Crawford tartan. So I showed up in my kilt, all decked out with my violin over my shoulder. And I think they could see the hunger in my eyes. I think they could see how desperate I was for this. Because up to this time, I hadn't had any really formal instruction, just still trying to take workshops and competition eval forms and, you know, trying to figure out what I was doing. So I won the scholarship and it was life changing for me. So I went to uh, Scotland that summer and I studied at Selmer Ostig and I listened and I learned and I bought recordings and I bought music and I studied the language. And it was the most transformative experience for me. Wow. And came back going, okay, I think I understand what I need to be doing and the direction that I need to be going. And it completely changed my sound. It was amazing. So I, I came back and I graduated and I got a, got a job as an orchestra teacher. And I, I sort of kept going through that channel. But the fiddling, the fiddling continued. You know, between that point and today, the really cool thing is that our musical culture as a whole has been changing. Like when I was, I came into my current job, I teach at Westminster College. When I came in under these national searches, I was all prepared to talk about pedagogy because that's what I did my grad work in, string pedagogy. I just totally skipped over that. I should have mentioned that. So I taught in the schools and then I needed, I wanted to go to grad school. What I didn't realize was while I was teaching, I was actually also running experiments on my students. Not like freaky experiments, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, all pedagogy, teaching, what happens if I do this first? What happens if I introduce it this way? And just to clarify, you were teaching violin or were you teaching all stringed instruments? I was teaching grades four through 12, orchestra and strings in general. So I was teaching... Um, like fourth graders, how to play the violin, the viola, the viola, and the string bass. And then I was also teaching orchestra, especially at the upper levels. So that's what I was teaching. And I was, you know, doing these experiments. And I realized that I needed to do my grad work in music education, but I wanted to focus in on string pedagogy, which is analyzing how you teach string instruments. And because that's what I discovered I was doing. I was running these experiments in my classroom, but I was doing experiments in pedagogy. So I went to OSU for music education because that's the formal name. But I got to study with really the best string pedagogues in the country. That is all analytical. You know, pedagogy, it's very analytical. First this, then this, and the result is this. It's very research-based and very, very analytical. And I loved it. Okay, so this is interesting. I never had a conversation about pedagogy itself. And, you know, I always thought education, teaching is all one thing. So can you go into that a little bit more? So it sounds like you're studying the art of teaching. Yeah, it's really, it is studying the art of teaching because, you know, like in undergrad, I was a music education major. I learned how to teach. But it was really, they're saying, okay, you need to do this. And this is a sequence in which you need to present it. That's like the one level you learn how to teach something. But pedagogy is a little deeper. Like what I was doing in grad school was 
not, I mean, learning how to teach, if you're saying, okay, you need to teach it, go, you know, step one, step two, step three, there's thought behind that. Where did step one, step two, and step three come from? And that's the pedagogy behind it. Why we teach in the order and the methods that we use. Mm -hmm. So I'm familiar with the Suzuki method, learning violin, and it basically is a stepwise approach. So is it like pedagogy is to learn how to do it to develop something like that? Yeah. And people study the Suzuki approach that it, that could be considered a type of pedagogy. What I was learning was not only the sort of the deeper, finer nuances of how to teach, but as especially from my master's into my doctoral program, it started getting more into why we teach the way we do and the different approaches to it. And then, you know, sort of how did these develop and breaking it down? It's sort of the, the fine art of breaking things down. You say, okay, here's step one. I'm going to teach it like this. Well, what happens if it doesn't work? You need to think creatively and you need to think analytically of how to tear it apart and break it down into smaller components and teach smaller bits or maybe change the direction that you're approaching that technique from. I once had a violin teacher who, you know, I was in a violin lesson, I was playing something for him. And I, I apologized. I think I missed a shift again or something like that. And I apologized. I said, I'm really working on it. You know, I just need to woodshed it more. I just need to practice it more. He said, how long have you been working on it? I said, oh, you know, I've been working on it really sincerely for a while. And he said, okay, you, you've got to be thinking about this wrong. And he asked me a couple questions. And then he said, okay, think about it like this. And he gave me a completely different scenario. He said, now try it. And I made the shift. He said, there's nothing that, you know, you need to just grind out over hours and hours and hours. If you find yourself doing that, you're thinking about it wrong. You have to recalibrate how you're thinking. And that just sort of blew up my world. That's a sign of a really good teacher. Oh, he was amazing. <laughs> you know, when you can, I, when you really can shift someone's mindset or know what the problem is with a mindset, right? Because it's not meant maybe your fingers, identifying that actual problem, right? And it wasn't a physical problem. It wasn't a muscle memory problem. It really was how I was approaching it with my brain. And that is great pedagogy because he broke it down and he saw, he could understand how I was approaching it and was able to change my perspective. You know, learning that was just incredible. It's impacted my own performance, how I practice, how I work with my own students, because I can sometimes see, you know, it's, it's a problem of the brain. It's not what they've been doing with their fingers at all. So that was really, really impactful. But that, that sort of works into the whole notion of pedagogy too. It's not just rote, you know, now we're going to do this and we're going to do this, but it's the thought behind it. It's the changing of perspectives. It's the changing of approaches. I use a lot of analogies when I teach and you try one analogy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, you've got to move on and come up with something else. Yeah, it sounds like you've had some amazing teachers and that drew you to learning about this in this way. Is that right? Yeah, because I found, you know, my own plane. I was also analyzing, like with, with my fiddling, 
you know, especially before I went to Scotland, and I'm looking at these uh, competition reports, and they're telling me something. So now I've I've got to go back to my music, and I've got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I started analyzing stuff there, and I just did a whole lot of analysis, and then dealing with pedagogy, and then dealing with you know some of my teachers that helped me think in this direction. It really grew this interest of mine so that when I went to grad school and I was in, you know, it's officially music education. Yeah. I was studying, you know, the nuances of string pedagogy, you know, how people really learn strings and why do we, why do we introduce some of the different techniques the way we do? My desire actually going in was to work with Scottish fiddle pedagogy because there's there was there hasn't been anything. That's right. I, yeah, you I, you were learning the competition, so you right <laughs> one of like the first ones in the country, right? <laughs> so I was really interested in that because I experienced a lack of instruction. It was in large part where I lived, and it was before the age of Zoom. So you know where I was growing up. You know, I was the only Scottish fiddler around for the most part. You know, I didn't have access to people. So I was really interested in Scottish fiddle pedagogy. And that's what I was actually able to work on with my dissertation. Oh, wow. Okay. That's amazing. It was awesome. And I have to give my my dissertation advisor a lot of credit because this was not necessarily within his comfort zone. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know? You're trailblazing here. <laughs> yeah, but you know, when you're trailblazing, you're frequently, you know, it's like, oh, it's that wackadoodle who wants to do fiddling, <laughs> you know. But, you know, he he supported me and uh, we got through it. We both survived. But it was designing an approach at that point. It was designing for people who already know how to play the instrument. So we were working with instructional materials for people who already know how to play the violin to cross over into Scottish fiddling and how to make sense of it and how to teach these concepts. You know, when I listen to this, I really do feel like through your love of fiddling, you've really blazed a trail when there wasn't a leader or someone, you kind of had to feel it out yourself, it seems like. And that takes a lot of vision and a lot of commitment and passion towards that. Is that what you felt like going through that? I guess, but honestly, I never stopped to think about it. It was just, it was just what I did. The fiddling, you know, it resonates so strongly with me. And there, I mean, there's been a love of it. Absolutely. So, you know, I I just sort of did what I needed to do. And the interest in teaching, you know, it's funny. I started when I started giving violin lessons, private violin lessons, I started giving classical violin lessons because that's what you did. And then eventually all my classical violin lessons ended up, all of a sudden I was teaching all fiddling lessons. <laughs> and it just sort of evolved that way. So then I, w- I was teaching people. When you're teaching the first person, you look to see, you know, well, how did I learn it? So you look at how you learned it and then you try to apply it and you try to change it. So I just, it was something I was living with almost daily. You know, how was I going to get better myself? How was I approaching it? But then I, I suddenly, I ended up with students and I was doing the same thing with them. So I wasn't 
really thinking about trailblazing or I was the first one. I mean, it was maybe annoying that I didn't have additional resources, <laughs> but it's just like, okay, well, you know, we got to figure this out. So this is what we've got to do. So it just sort of, it just sort of happened. So now you teach students both at the university and elsewhere. And is there more teachers now in this field? I mean, how has this field developed? Okay. Well, for me, I, I teach at Westminster and I teach classical violin. I teach orchestra. I've, I'm still very much tapped into the orchestral side of things. And I, you know, I, I teach classical stuff over there. But I mean, Westminster has been great because I also give Scottish fiddling lessons there for credit. And I've got a Scottish fiddling uh, group over there that I work with. Westminster's been great. They've been so supportive of my fiddling. You know, when I, w- I was saying when I came into these searches, so much of what they wanted to talk to, not all, but so much, they wanted to talk about my fiddling, which was so different from years ago when nobody really was interested or they looked down on it. And they're like, yeah, and you're a Scottish fiddler. And you do this. This is so cool. Tell me more about this. So it was wild. So I teach there. And then I also maintain a private studio of Scottish fiddlers. And, you know, privately, that's all I teach is Scottish fiddling. And it started when Dan and I left Ohio because I'd built up a studio, a Scottish fiddle studio in Ohio. And we were moving to Louisiana for his first job. And I was grumbling because you know, I basically, I just finally got my studio established and I'm about to move and I lose all my students. I'm going to have to start over again in Louisiana. And, you know, I've heard about this new software. It's called Skype. Yeah. <laughs> We're moving down there, but why don't you see if you can teach over it? And he said, you know, if it works great, if it doesn't, we'll talk to our mothers over it or whatever. And it worked. <laughs> it was amazing. And this was back in... 2007, it was right after we got married, we moved to Louisiana and I started teaching over Skype and it worked. And then the word got out and it grew. So I have maintained basically an online, because I've never really lived in an area with the exception of when I was teaching, I was part of a Scottish fiddle club down around DC. I was lucky there were more people there, but after I left for grad school, I've never really lived in an area where there have been more Scottish fiddlers. My teaching is all online. It's been since 2007, all Scottish fiddlers. I've taught kids and I teach a lot of adults. You know, in 2021, you know, there are more Scottish fiddle teachers. There were much fewer when I was, far fewer when I was little, but the Scottish fiddling has grown since then. So there are more of us teaching. And then thanks to the pandemic, I think we've all been teaching online. <laughs> I was going to say, but you were like revolutionary with Skype, you know, yeah. back in 2007. <laughs> yeah. So interesting to say now. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was one of the first, but there are more of us, but there's still not a, not a ton. So, you know, if you want to study Scottish fiddling, unless you're really lucky in terms of where you live. Like if you're out in LA or San Francisco, you're going to find people much more easily, Boston, the DC area. But as soon as you leave those hubs, good luck. (laughs) I mean, I didn't even know that in the hubs that there were, there were fiddlers. Right. Because it's still, everyone just assumes they're Irish fiddlers crazy. You start playing someone someplace and they go, oh, you're an Irish fiddler. It's like, no, I'm really not. Would you consider fiddling tapping into like something that's creative within you or how do you, 
I mean, I feel like you've really created things at a very, just at a very high level in terms of programs or connecting these dots, but the actual music itself, I guess, what would you say? Absolutely. And I have to say, it's one of the things I love the most about fiddling because with fiddling, it's so open to interpretation. I mean, wide open to interpretation. We're lucky we have music that has been notated from really starting in 1700. So we have collections of music dating back all the way till then. So we're incredibly lucky we have this incredible trove of music, but Scottish fiddling has also been transmitted orally. And as soon as you deal with oral transmission or inaccurate transcription and notation that we also dealt with. But as soon as you deal with an oral tradition, it's like the game of telephone. And because of that, and because of even with the notation that we have, it's not done correctly. I don't want to say correctly, but maybe not done accurately. Right. So just curious. So that means basically you hear someone playing and then you play it, or is that what you mean? Yeah. Oral transmission is I'm hearing somebody play it. I learn it from them. Okay. Okay. And then somebody else learns it from me. So it's not written down, right? It's not. Right. Okay. Right. Um, The great thing with oral transmission is that you get the real sound, whereas the notation has never been written down 100% accurately because unlike the orchestral tradition, when you're trying to unify, you know, 24 violins and they have to play exactly the same thing. The notation practice in Scottish fiddling has been to get down the gist. You know, here are the notes. Here's pretty much the rhythm, but you know how we really play it. So it's really the gist. It comes frequently with very few articulations. So it doesn't really have bowings, or it might have a couple bowings that don't add up. It may have a couple notations for ornamentation, but you have to know that if it's written as a trill in the notation, you don't actually play it as a trill. All this sort of backdoor knowledge that you have to have in order to interpret the written notation. So the oral tradition has helped kept the real style alive. We rely on the written notation for the transmission of tunes, but you have to look at it and understand how to play it, not get in the whole story. So it leaves the door so wide open to interpretation. So I can see a tune or I can hear a tune. And then it is acceptable within the style to do my own thing to it. You know, when I'm teaching, I think of it, I draw a circle. And then I put a bunch of little stars inside the circle. And the style is the, is the circle. And then we all have to find sort of our little niche within the circle. Because it is valued to sound different. I I am not supposed to sound exactly like somebody else, which means when I'm listening to recordings or I hear a friend play, I can hear their own style within the style. You can put a recording on for me and I can be listening and go, oh, oh, that's got to be so-and-so. Oh, that's so, so everyone has their own fingerprint. Yeah. And that's encouraged. So the interpretation is encouraged and it can be... Everything from sort of our choice of ornamentation to our choice of bowing patterns, which influence the grooves, to really blatant stuff. Some of the slow, very, very, very old airs. The notation is really hard to get an accurate 
picture. So it's it's really rough notation and you have to go in, you just have a lot of wiggle room. Rhythmically, you can actually even change a couple of pitches because the idea is you're not really changing the identity of the tune. If you change one eighth note from an F sharp to an E, it's still the tune. So you can mess with it to the point that you can even change the key. If something is originally in G major and you actually for your purposes or for what you want to do, you want to play it in A major. You can. I've taken tunes from, I, I'm recording an album now, and I'm really excited about this one tune because I found it in a book from the 18th century, and it's written in G major. However, it's about a massacre, and it just it just never added up to me. Oh, <laughs> It's a more positive uh, tone, right? Or <laughs> yeah, it just it just had this horrible disconnect. I switched it from G major to G minor, and all of a sudden, this tune came alive. I love doing that. It feels like archaeology in the context of music. I find this old tune, and you can see that there's a whole lot of potential. You need to sort of start dusting away. Where are the phrases really? Well, that makes sense over there. And this doesn't make sense. And ooh, I think this note belongs to that phrase. And okay, if I just, I think this is the end of the phrase, so I'm going to stretch this. And all of a sudden you have something that is actually speaking to you. And it is suddenly powerful and emotional. Whereas when it was sitting on the page in G major, it was like fighting to get out. Yeah, so it's basically really listening to the essence of that peace and the time and circumstances and trying to adapt it or capture or evolve it in some way. Is that right? Yeah, it is. And we have the latitude to do that. So if I take, and I am, I'm taking that piece as an example piece to my uh, fiddle school in July as an example, because especially in the U.S., when we can't go down to a pub and listen to somebody play, people come to the fiddle school. So we're, we are very dependent on notation. So we have to understand how to deal with it. I'm actually taking that exact tune in G major, and I'm going to walk them through the process. The tune as I found it in the 18th century collection. It's called The Massacre of Glencoe, and it's a massacre. And Glencoe is actually a very, very well-known massacre in Scottish history. And uh, so we, we have the title, and then it's even marked in the music. It's great. Slow and pathetic. Okay. So that the information that we get. And then we're given this G major tune. Yeah, that's really a discord. <laughs> really, really is. So, you know, how do you, how do you fix that? So, and that particular collection I know was a transcription from a tune collector in the 18th century. Who knows where it originated? It's an old traditional tune. We have no idea where it came from. Well, it would have been written after, well, Glencoe happened in 1692, so we know it happened sometime after then. So, um, but it's just, it's fascinating the way you can take some of these pieces and just manipulate them into something that's still, they fit within the style. So, you know, you're asking creativity. Yeah. You know, it's, it really goes hand in hand. I really am analyzing the music, but I'm trying to keep an open mind. Well, what happens if I, ooh, maybe if I put it in minor, maybe if I pull this note a little longer, it'll make more sense. Right, right. That That's phenomenal. I mean, that you do that and you still adapt it to, you know, your interpretation, but that's amazing. I just wanted to ask you about, so, you know, you mentioned that 
you and Dan are both analytical creatives and both in music. And I'm just wondering if you could give us a glimpse of, you know, what that's like when someone has that perspective, maybe similarities and differences. I've been really lucky. It's been really easy because we're very much on the same page. And the analytic thinking expands beyond our, our music to our daily lives. <laughs> yeah. Really nice. It, we, we work really well. We work really well there. But, you know, then he brings up, you know, hey, you know, I was thinking maybe we could turn the pergola into an enclosed space. Like, okay, I wasn't really thinking that way, but all right, <laughs> let me hear what you got. So, you know, I come up with harebrained ideas and he's really patient with me and he comes up with harebrained ideas and I'm all ears for him. It's worked really well. And then when we deal with music and Dan plays with me, he plays piano with me. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. You didn't? Yeah. He's my accompanist. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's great because we're so, we're so in sync. So he'll see what I'm doing with a piece. And he's like, yep, I'm with you. I'm with you. This is cool. Or I'm putting a set together. And, you know, he's a he's a professional composer. And I'm messing with keys. And it's like, well, what do you think of this? He's like, well, they both work. Thank you. But which one do you prefer? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we we can understand each other really well. And when he's sharing what he's doing with me or he's playing an overture that he's he's writing, or he'll ask me to look at violin parts. And then suddenly, you know, my perspective has changed. I'm not a fiddler. I'm definitely an orchestral violinist. And I'm looking and um, we'll be talking about, well, this is possible, but, you know, this is harder than the other. But what, a, you know, what about your main idea? Does that really impact? And it's like, oh, well, you know, there's been a lot of hard stuff. Maybe I'll make this a little easier. And the orchestral musician in me is like, don't change it for us. If, you know, leave it alone. And he'll say, you know, it's fine because it still gives the same impression. And as an orchestral musician, that that took a bit of getting used to. The idea of the composer changing for the comfort of the musicians, just, you know, we never think of it that way. So it works. We've we've been a really good match because of it. Thank you, Ellen. (laughs) (laughs) We helped get it together. But it's really easy because I like when I found this one piece, this Massacre of Glencoe, I was so excited to tell him about it. And he could understand what I was talking about, which was great. And it was just, it felt good because I was excited about it. He could understand and get excited for me. I mean, I probably prattled on a little long about it, but you know, he was able to be excited for me and he understood why. It's been really good. We've just, we've matched up well there and it's really enriched, I think, both of our professional lives being able to have somebody at home that we can come go, oh my God, guess what? I figured this out. I'll show them different things that I'm working on. I'm I'm working on a book right now for beginners to the instrument to learn how to play Scottish fiddling. So, you know, I'll I'll show them what I'm doing. And just the the appreciation is great. And then he was like, well, have you have you thought maybe instead of one ginormous book, maybe three books? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see where it goes. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, no, I'm, thank you so much for just sharing just a glimpse of that. And 
I can see just, you know, when someone is in sync creatively as well as mentally and, you know, that definitely enhances so many different aspects of your life. And so I see that I was definitely privileged to be with you guys early on when you met. And and that was, that was amazing to experience. And given the fact we've talked so much about fiddling, I'm so excited that you're going to be just recording a sample and a piece of for fiddling for us to hear. So I'll be releasing that. And I'm just so excited to personally hear it and also for everyone else to hear that as well. Oh, you bet. Now that'll be fun. Well, Melinda, thank you so much for your time. I have just been so captivated by your passion and your how your career has unfolded and all the opportunities that you've taken with fiddling, but also that you're so talented and experienced in music education and pedagogy and the, and the classical violin and orchestra part. I mean, that's, that's just a mouthful to say, but really it's been such a pleasure to really unwrap this with you. And thank you so much for having me on here. It's been a blast to talk to you again. Yes. I loved hearing about Melinda's love of Scottish fiddling and where that has taken her. Don't forget to listen to the bonus podcast episode of Melinda's Scottish Fiddling. You can hear how she took a melody and adapted it to better fit the story and tone. You can hear the original melody and Melinda's reinterpretation in the bonus episode. I've included links to Melinda's YouTube channel in the show notes for you to hear examples of her fiddling. Some of the key takeaways from our conversation are one, We all know about teaching and education, but pedagogy is a little deeper. It is a study of why we teach the steps and methodology that we do. It involves thinking both analytically to break down the process into smaller components and then creatively to also change the direction if needed. Two, as you are learning something, if you find yourself needing to grind over something for hours and you're still not getting it, consider recalibrating your approach. Your thinking and mindset may be the issue try and change your perspective or mindset on the problem, which could be asking someone to be your sounding board or seeking a teacher or coach with expertise in that area. Three, Melinda showed how she is a trailblazer in Scottish fiddling. It started off with a strong love and a desire to learn. From there, she just took the next step she felt she needed to keep improving, both for herself and then later how to help her students. Those steps culminated in her current success in this field. For your passion, what next step can you take to help you advance? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I have more great interviews of analytical creatives that I will be releasing on a weekly basis. If this episode or topic has inspired you or reminded you of something, I would love to hear. Listeners have sent me links to podcast episodes or artwork that reminded them of analytical creatives. You can email me at the analytical creative podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at the underscore analytical underscore creative. Also, I want to give credit to singer-songwriter Tiana V for creating my fun and upbeat podcast theme. Go find her on Facebook and Instagram at Tiana V Music. <laughs>